Richard, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Today, I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast to talk about David Cronenberg's adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Dead Zone. If the future were in your hands, Taurus is screaming. The house is burning. Would you change it? It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. With a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody. I mean, nobody. Gonna stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit bless you with this gift you should use it bless me you're a devil son of a man who are you who sent you i'm scared sir what's happening to me we're gonna get married johnny don't leave me please didn't you see how clear it all is not only can you see the future i can change scanning a screen and you'll go down in history with me i saw his face i stood there i did nothing stephen king the dead zone this is a film that i have not seen in probably i'm gonna say 20 25 maybe 30 years and it was quite an experience for me to revisit the film, but I absolutely know nothing about your experience of the film or any of your thoughts about watching the film. I'm coming in here completely blank. I don't know if this is a film you had previously seen or if you were experiencing it for the first time. So I'm gonna put you on the spot and let you speak first and give me some of your general thoughts and sentiments towards The Dead Zone. This, this is one of those movies that was on cable all the time when. I uh, you know, after, you know, after the mid 1980s. And so over decades, I've only seen this movie in pieces. So there were some parts that I was absolutely familiar with and some parts that I had never seen before, um, particularly, I guess, the second half of the movie. You know, I, I, I think I've seen it a bunch of times, but the whole serial killer episode, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, first act that, that part I didn't know anything about. So um, it was kind of fun to finally get to see the whole thing in the right order. And I was so impressed with it. There's just so many nooks and crannies mm-hmm. and, 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 and brilliant touches. I benefited a lot from actually watching it three times because I kept getting more and more out of it. Well, that's probably the highest compliment you could pay to a film, uh, especially a film that I think could be lumped into a genre film, although I kind of feel about that the way I do about people saying things like genre fiction, like detective fiction or crime fiction is genre fiction. Whereas I generally try to subscribe to the the adage, there's only two kinds, good and bad. <laughs> well, that may be a, a valid theory. I think in this case, because of the Stephen King's, uh, you know, uh, writing the novel and him being categorized as a horror fiction writer that 
the movie and it's it's the same with with a handful of other you know king adapted pieces like you know Shawshank Redemption or The Green Mile these aren't a, these aren't horror movies you know they they might involve supernatural elements but they're character driven stories and The Dead Zone is a really good one I want to read a little bit from a writer named Ryan Lambie, who writes for Den of Geek, which is a pretty good website that covers a lot of different types of horror and science fiction movies, movies of all kinds. This is one of the things I read, and I thought, you know, I'll never be able to say this sentiment better than Ryan Lambie just did. So let me just read this because I think it's a good jumping off point. He says, quote, but as Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining proved, the pairing of an analytical filmmaker with a pop horror premise can produce movie magic as though the collision of these two opposing forces somehow creates a unique spark of its own. That certainly proved to be the case with The Dead Zone, a supernatural drama that is less grandiose than The Shining and less sensationally violent than Brian De Palma's Carrie, but stands along both as among the very best Stephen King horror adaptations yet seen. Agree or disagree? Oh, I agree. And I'm not here to uh, beat up on horror movies or Stephen King horror movies. Um, I just think this is a, uh, a particularly good, well-made piece that comes out of his, you know, comes out of his work. It's well adapted. We'll get into sort of the way that this was put together with a lot of different uh, stops and starts, including mm. Stephen King writing a rejected <laughs> screenplay version. Uh, but what, what, what they ended up with was some other... Um, some other creators taking a crack at it is a really good is a really good piece. And uh, again, it's that's not that's not to critique things that are horror. I just think this is uh, this is a, I agree that this is a different kind of uh, movie. And uh, and you, and it's apples and oranges compared to some of the other things that came out in the 1980s, you know, following the pen of Stephen King. And also thinking this, this was a good opportunity for me to kind of uh, revisit David Cronenberg and just have renewed appreciation for the fact that he exists, that he walks among us, that he makes films <laughs> going back from 1969 to the present day. And man, what a, what an amazing, unique, uh, analytical is a word that that Ryan Lambie used there, which I think is so true, an analytical filmmaker. So whether he's making something like The Fly or Dead Ringers or Scanners or Videodrome or The Brood or, or, or Crash or things that are maybe more seemingly straightforward, like A History of Violence um, or this movie in its own way, I find every scene is sort of I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm putting it on it. Like, did you feel that when you were watching the dead zone? I found even sort of like mundane scenes that I guess are providing expository detail or dialogue. I still found them kind of weighted with this, this sense that something was off. Um, and I, I think it's intentional, obviously in a scene like that great roller coaster scene between walking and Brooke Adams, where it's shot with such a sense of fun as they're enjoying themselves and the wind is blowing through their hair. And then he starts to have a, like a headache, a problem, and he's, he's off, right? And it, it lends this scene, you're, you're off kilter, I guess, is the word I would use. Did you sense that anywhere else? Like other than the, obviously the scenes that you're supposed to feel off kilter. I just thought some of the other even basic scenes were like analytical in the way that there was a kind of impending sense of dread. Maybe I'm just putting that on it. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you, and that's where maybe, um, 
you know, it can really benefit from not only watching this movie and rewatching it is that the dialogue is so good in um, the sense of the literary sense of foretelling what's going to happen in the movie. There's a, you know, very sort of seemingly not very consequential scene where Christopher Walken and his fiance are uh, saying goodbye on the porch at mm. night at the end of their date. And uh, he's about to go have, have this uh, catastrophic car accident mm -hmm. and she's, but at the, but she's inviting him in to have, you know, lovemaking for the night in the house. And he's like, some things are better. <laughs> some things are, uh, uh, are worth waiting. Yeah. For. And there's a, there's a ton of things like that. that <laughs> what is that you, scene that like, that's a great example. Why? I, I mean, is it because there's more at stake when they lose the relationship that they don't sort of just go inside and consummate the way they obviously both want to? Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's about the sex part. I mean, it does kind of play out in a weird way later in the movie mm -hmm. when they, you know, after he's gone through the coma and then she sort of shows up, you know, wanting to finally uh, finish the consummation or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, I think it's more that throughout the whole movie that the, the, uh, the dialogue is sort of always playing with um, consequences, decision-making, things that you plan to do in your life that mm. go in a different direction. And uh, there's just a lot of great touches like that, mm. you know, in the dialogue where uh, there are little jokes actually uh, in a way mm. um, about um, the assumptions we make uh, about what the next few minutes or the next few years of our life are going to be like. So the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is the great scene at the press conference where the reporter kind of baits Walken into giving him a reading. Hey, John, touch my hand. Tell me, is, is my house on fire, John? Do you want me to stop no, this? Tell you about your house. Uh -huh. What do you want to know? Do you want to you want to know the future? You want to know if you're going to die? Is that it? You're going to die. I'm going to die. You want to know if you're going to die tomorrow. Is that right? You want to know why your sister killed herself. All right. You don't. Go. It's not all right. It's okay. It's not okay. Okay. I could tell you now. I'm not going to talk about that. Let go of me, you fucking freak. It's the great part where Walken's like, you don't want you don't want to know if you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. You want to know why your sister kills herself. Like he goes mm -hmm. right to the heart of the matter. I just keep coming back to this thing I say all the time on the podcast, which ironic given the presence of Stephen King and the looming presence of Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King and Kubrick's stated belief that the best movies come from adaptations of books, not original screenplays. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Cronenberg's filmography, I would say the majority of his films uh, he wrote and directed. That's his his level of auteurship. Certainly up through Videodrome, which was the film just before The Dead Zone, which came out in 1983, he had written and produced all his films. The Dead Zone is the first film he did not write. And I read or heard him say in an interview that Videodrome like if you imagine making scanners and then Videodrome, he's he said something sort of like just needing a break from things that were that intense. And if you're David Cronenberg, I guess, you know, 
a respite, a walk in the park is to make the dead zone. Like for him, that's not quite as challenging in terms of like plumbing the depths of the violence and all the types of things that he had uh, in Videodrome. But I think it's such an interesting Cronenberg film because he didn't write it and because it has this unique structure, which I never realized sort of watching it as a kid, which is this three-part structure, three vignettes almost. Yeah. And you mentioned that a lot of people took a pass at the screenplay and a lot of different people passed on directing the movie. And it kind of, it's a great story because it comes back, it's a great story the making of because it comes back around to the right screenplay, which is the one written by Jeffrey Bohm, uh, who turns out to be a really interesting screenwriter who wrote, I a, a, a love a screenwriter who could write the following movies, The Dead Zone, Indiana mm-hmm. Jones and The Last Crusade. Lost Inter- Boys. Lost Boys, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, Inner Space. Right. <laughs> what? Uh-huh. But by all accounts, a really interesting and sharply incisive guy. And I just think it's interesting that, you know, he writes a screenplay and then somehow, I guess it's De Laurentiis, was it De Laurentiis sort of didn't like this the, the screenplay, which if Dino De Laurentiis didn't like your screen, screenplay, it probably means it was good. Dino just didn't <laughs> get it. Right. Well, I mean, just to sort of give people the uh, the brief history on the screenplay that Bohm was the first screenwriter. Then uh, when the the uh, movie got handed around to De Laurentiis, he didn't like it. So he went out and said, well, you know, why don't you get me Stephen King to write it? Mm-hmm. And Stephen King uh, did a treatment and uh, both De, La- De Laurentiis and Cronenberg hated that. <laughs> then they brought in another guy. Uh, uh, Andrzej uh, Zulawski. Right. You know, a Polish screenwriter who had, was only really known for writing sort of dark mm-hmm. Polish fiction, or maybe he was German, but anyway, they went through all those people. And then eventually uh, a couple years later, Dean Laurentis came back and said, what about that Jeffrey Bohm script? Mm. And so they, they brought him back on. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, that's just Hollywood stuff, I guess. Well, in uh, the Wikipedia pages, Bohm, Bohm tells the writer, Tim Lucas, quote, King's book is longer than it needed to be. Something I think you could say of most Stephen King books of this era. Yeah. Uh, that's my interjection, not Jeffrey Bohm. The novel sprawls and it's episodic. What I did was use that episodic quality because I saw the dead zone as a triptych. And I didn't really realize this watching the movie as a kid that you really have three distinct sections with some passage of time between the sections. Obviously, you have five years between the accident, which another weird Cronenberg touch. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's in the book. I'm going to assume it is. But to me, it feels so Cronenberg that it's a milk truck. I don't know why. Like, it's just strange <laughs> that it's a milk truck, isn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I forget. I forget. I haven't read the novel. I don't not sure what the in the novel. The uh, he's actually in the back of a taxi cab that drives mm. into a, a truck or something. But I don't I don't know if it was a milk truck in the book. Mm. I like to think that that's a specific Cronenberg weirdness. I don't know why. Right. Um, but. I actually had to check between sections two and three, the passage of time and something I like about the movie, it's done pretty subtly. And I didn't realize, you know, if you remember in the end of the second section, which is the, which is the murder section, right? He, the, the, the serial killer where the it's castle the, rock killer, the castle rock killer section. Um, no, wait, you're calling that section. What? Well, that's section two, isn't it? Cause section one is, the setup, the accident, the development of the ability to see things. 
And now, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree just a little bit. <laughs> to me, Act One is um, all of the the setup, the coma, the coming out of the coma, the girlfriend, everything up through the 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 story of the Castle Rock Killer. To me, that's Act One, or I guess Episode One. Episode Two is the um, his interaction with the the rich kid and the and the uh, the kids falling through the ice, mm. and then I would call Act Three the the uh, the uh, Martin Sheen the Stilson Stimson Stilson campaign. To me, that's the three acts. Okay, to but me, I, but I, you could make an argument that there's a separate that the uh, that the the murder uh, serial killer sequence is separate. Well, I would say this is to me this is the three acts. the The first act is. The, the introduction of the main two protagonists and before the car accident and then the five years later when he wakes from a coma that mm-hmm. that whole section and in, which in, which includes uh the interlude again between christopher walken and brooke adams at the at his father's house and then also kind of ends with him uh it that that section i believe ends with him saying i'm going to help him Right, he's watching TV with his father. Uh-huh. He realizes that the relationship is not going to rekindle. He's sort of at loose ends, and he decides to help the Tom Skerritt police character. And then, to me, that's the second part of the triptych: is the Castle Rock killer uh, section. Okay. And then the third part is the whole is yes that part with the with the with the rich kid and his father and Stilson. And I'm not sure if it's between two and three or somewhere within three, but there's an amazing little weird jump where if you remember, um, oh, it's when it's when the it's when uh, Brooke Adams hus- new husband is campaigning for Stilson after Stilson has met Johnny at the home of the rich kid's father. Remember that? Yeah. And I think Walken does such a great thing mm. of kind of not uh not being interested in Stilson and sort of kind of getting the measure of Stilson right away as Stilson is sort of obstreperously glad handing everyone in sight. Mm-hmm. But it when when uh when the rich kids I'm trying to remember how that how it unfolds, but there's like a passage of time that's delineated just by Johnny now teaching a girl in the house. And he has a sign out front on the door that wasn't there in the very ne- in the scene that preceded it. Do you remember this at all? Uh, or am I well, getting way I don't too? Quite remember the sequence, but he's definitely moved to a new town. Yeah, um, and then he gets well. I think we establish he moves to a new town when the, there's a visit from the uh, from Correct. the doctor Vizak. Correct. Um, yeah, in that in that place where he's living, and, and then doesn't it go right from there to his tutoring of the of the the teenage girl it does but there's a there's a subtle passage of time which cronenberg delineates through the continued assemblage of the stilson mural which directly oh, faces okay. his house which is just yeah. such a great little way to indicate a passage of time without putting five years later or six months later it's some amount of time later from the scene that immediately preceded it and it's not explained to you as a viewer other than there's now a sign in front of his house that says tutor tutoring and then there's a shot where they cut to the Stilson billboard, and it's the previous time we saw it, um, a couple shots earlier, it only had the f- the top part of this long Stilson billboard being painted. Mm-hmm. And then when we see it here, 
we see the whole thing has been assembled. And then that's, that's when cool. I did not notice it's that. a cool little touch. And it's just part of the, the, the smart way that I think Cronenberg lays out this information in a triptych, which doesn't make it feel like three. It doesn't feel like three separate short films to me because Johnny and Chris Walken, who I'm sure we'll talk about at length is, is on such a consistent journey through all three parts that we go with him as his life is changing and as he has these interludes. And to me, that's sort of because you're taking from a much larger piece of work in this novel and, and eventually, whether it's Jeffrey Bohm or Cronenberg or Deborah Hill, who deserves a hell of a lot of credit, too, for just being an amazing producer to begin with, but yeah. having a huge part in this film as well. However, they figure that out, but these these sections that were taken from the book are so representative in such a great way. Yeah, and and really efficiently put together. My understanding, again, I have not read that novel. My understanding is that uh, it's told from several points of view, um, you know, several protagonist point, points of view. There's a very very much longer sections on the serial killer and um, the sort of upbringing and uh, background of the Stilson character. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, I read something where uh, Cronenberg said that, but you know, when they got to the final screenplay that they had narrowed the first third of the novel down to the first 10 minutes of Mm. this film. I think the Stilson thing in the book starts with him like killing a dog or something, yeah. <laughs> something horrible. Yeah, um, he's a Bible salesman. Oh, that's right. He's a Bible salesman, which is so yeah. great. That is a great touch. I mean, a Stilson movie, God, Martin Sheen, I will say he tips it over a bit into, yeah. um, I'm not going to say slapstick. I'm not going to say parody. It's powerful. He's such a good actor that he pulls it off. Tonally, I could turn the knob a couple degrees down. And I think still have a successful outcome, but he's so all in that it's kind of winning and you can't help but be horrified by him. And of course, watching the film today and what is it, 2022 or 2023? I can't remember. Today is uh, the uh, 2022. Okay. Watching it in 2022, Stilson will inevitably remind many listeners of some very specific politicians that are currently active in our discourse. I'll say no more. I'm Greg Stilson. Just thought I'd stop by here on my way to the U.S. Senate. Greg Stilson. Remember you met him in the hall this morning? Coming out, all of you. Boy, you got to be in good shape to go the full distance for those big boys down in Washington. Right. You got to stay in shape all the time with those boys. You can't turn your back on them. You got to stay in better shape in this country. What the hell is happening to this country? Can anybody tell me what the hell is going on? Look at here. I read one of your local papers you right here on the front believe this guy? He's, got He's just getting warmed up. Vote for him, John. I'm not even registered. You not registered? No. Well, get registered, pal. And vote against this turkey. He's dangerous. And I see all around me so many unemployed. What are you people doing here in the middle of the day? Middle of a work day. You're standing out in the cold. Look around, look at each other. How do you feel about each other? Are you proud of your communities? Would you send the guy next to you to the U.S. Senate? Huh? A real man of the people. You don't feel good about Jesus, what an act. Can't they see through this guy? 
I'm mixed up. You both acted like you were friends this morning. <laughs> Guys like Stilson, you gotta walk us in line. Can't get too close, because if they lose, they'll drag you down with them. On the other hand, if he wins, and this turkey just might, you gotta make sure you thought it was a good friend. You know what I mean, Jack? <laughs> They're not working. There's unemployment everywhere. Those scenes are probably the only scenes in the film that, to me, get a little hokey. I mean, the nuclear holocaust thing. But again, it's it's shot and played with full commitment, so I'm not knocking it. It just it does tip a bit over, but it's rescued for me in the brilliance of Cronenberg's staging, filming, and editing of the final moment of the film, which is such an interesting way to end a movie. Um, it's both a downer and not a downer. Johnny mm-hmm. is Johnny is free, but also dead. Um, and it's 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 a really interesting and cool way. I kept thinking the whole time I was watching the movie. God, remember being alive when movies like this could get made? Like it just wouldn't happen <laughs> nowadays. You know, it's yeah, just, I don't think so either. It, yeah. It's just like it's a cool. It's like it's like people sitting around going like, this is a cool idea for a movie. You know, and they're not worried about all the things that 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 producers and studios and streamers have to worry about in this day and age. This is like a character study in the horror genre with really interesting people involved of top shelf quality like Deborah Hill, David Cronenberg, Christopher Walken, Michael Kamen's score is amazing. Um, and I'm just, I'm sort of bummed in a way that this kind of stuff doesn't really happen. And I know people will be like, oh, you just have to go find it. It's out there, but not really, not in this type of movie, you know? Well, the other thing that's interesting about this when we're talking about whether it's genre or not, uh, because we agree that it's not horror, um, that what you have being made here is a story about an ordinary guy, a high school English teacher, something catastrophic happens to him that leads to him finding out that he has a supernatural gift, and then he proceeds to... um, uh, wring his hands about uh, his responsibilities towards that gift and goes out and, you know, saves initially, mm-hmm. tries to save a lot of kids and then eventually saves the world. I mean, this is a comic book uh, mm-hmm. platform, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, that, you know, all movies today, basically all movies that go into theaters are, um, you know, something man part three uh and <laughs> ant uh, iron right and it seems like a movie about an uh a, a, you know a movie that is this subtle about a heroic char- character um probably like you said uh either couldn't get made or would have a hard time finding an audience and it's so unique too that like here's christopher walken you like him but you're put but you're also and, and we again we have to remember this is kind of like it's not before Christopher Walken was a thing, but it's relatively early in his career. And he's so fluid and so natural an actor. He's so winning. I was reminded, and I've mentioned this on the pod a couple of times that when I really got into severance, uh, which I highly recommend people watch if they haven't watched it, uh, someone reviewing it, I think in the times said it was such a great example and reminder that Christopher Walken is a great actor and not just mm-hmm. this pop culture kind of thing. You know what I mean? It gets reduced to these impressions that people do uh, because of his mm-hmm. very distinctive speaking style. Uh-huh. But here, he's so well utilized. And it's there's something about Walken that 
alone can contain the sadness of Johnny's journey, which is such a weird, I mean, it's a very Stephen King kind of thing, right? It's almost, uh, it's cynical, I guess, because it's sort of like, here's this guy who's a miracle and comes out of the miracle with miraculous abilities, which destroys his life, essentially. And it reduces Mm. him to a recluse who literally can't even leave his home because of uh, what people think of him. And then even in his home, in that amazing scene where the doctor comes and visits him and he's got the pile of mail and packages from people that want him to find people for them. Mm-hmm. And it's such a kind of sardonic, cynical take on, on this miracle, which to me, I was also really struck by all the religious imagery that's throughout the movie. Did you pick up on all the plaques and the, Jesus sayings and the the crosses in every kind of scene. Did you did you notice that as you were going through? There's definitely religious iconography all over the place. I was a little disappointed that sometimes you can't see it. Uh, you know, you can see sort of you know the picture of Jesus or whatever in the background, but in the in the uh, in Johnny's mm-hmm. uh, uh, childhood home, there's these little uh, you know religious Christian religious plaques all over the house, and I wanted to be able to see what they said. Um, uh, and you know, it, it provides background to the story as far as the fact that his, you know, his mother is a devout Christian and, mm-hmm. um, the, and then we get a, uh, you know, a striking, uh, comparison between his mother and his upbringing. And then the serial killer's mother played by Colleen Dewhurst yeah. and the fact that she is also very nurturing mm-hmm. of her son, but uh, is protecting him from being, uh, you know, captured and exposed to serial killer. And she, she has the nerve uh, in her one scene called the great Colleen Dewhurst to call Johnny's character, the devil, uh, the devil. <laughs> She's so good. It just occurred to me watching the movie, too, is like, oh, um, did Stephen King have some issue with his mom? <laughs> it's a biography that uh, <laughs> that other people uh, probably have looked a lot deeper into. It's not my area of expertise. I should have looked into it a bit because having done Carrie on the podcast uh, here, you have another religious fanatic, difficult, crazy mother. Uh, in this movie, you have two. I mean, you have Colleen Dewhurst as Henrietta. And you have the great Jackie Burroughs as as Johnny's mother, Vera, both of whom are, well, Vera is not portrayed negatively per se, but she's so religious as to not be a real person, whereas Johnny feels always like a very real person. Um, I was, I also, I w- I, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to your point of like, you wanted to kind of see some of the plaques. I, I stopped down because I wanted to, uh, I had just heard uh, a production designer talk about you know, the fact that everything you see in a movie, right, it's all there for a reason. And, and or I think it was a sound designer saying this, that, you know, we replace everything in a film and every sound you hear is there for a reason. And people watch films and they just think, oh, yeah, that's the sound in the room as these people are having this dialogue mm-hmm. or conversation. But everything is put in meticulously. And the same thing goes for production design. And so with that in my mind, as I was watching this and I noticed like, OK, every room has some religious iconography in it. And knowing Cronenberg and knowing his kind of twisted sense of humor in a way, I was sure that there were messages in the plaques that had been chosen. And sure enough, when you stop and look at them, there's some some interesting ones. One one of them that's in uh, Johnny's dad's house is a plaque that says, 
Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation, hmm. which is such a creepy sentiment to have in your home. <laughs> like, wherever you are, guess who? <laughs> and, and so that, that kind of... Um, the, the treatment of religious faith and belief and and sort of Johnny's journey of that and everyone in the film, I guess, is kind of either on one side or another of belief in that. You know, you have the reporter that we mentioned who taunts Johnny is clearly not a believer until Johnny completely <laughs> gets into the fact that his sister killed himself. And then the guy freaks out. And there's there's always there's a couple scenes of people trying to pry their hand out of Christopher Walken's hand as he's as he's gripping them. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have people kind of like Tom Skerritt, who's so perfectly cast and used as a guy who's, hey, he's got a murder to solve, right? So if this is what it takes, he's he's going to go along with it. You know, he he doesn't know what he's going to get. And you have people like Herbert Lom, who's so good as Dr. Wiesak. I think. Yeah, I don't know that actor. He was really. Uh, oh, my God. Of course, you know, Herbert Lom. I don't. I mean, Rick. I went back and looked at all his credits. And you never saw surprised. the Pink Panther? I mean, when I went back to look at his credits, I saw what it, what he was in and was like, oh, yeah, he was that guy. You know, I saw what he was in, but I didn't recognize him on our first screening. Oh, he's so good. Of, of the dead zone. He's good. Now, he's I don't know if you felt this like, again, I was watching the film and I was like, he's a good guy. Right. He's there to help Johnny. Right. Um, there was always still a little edge. I felt of uncertainty. I was kind of like, is he going to turn out to be in it against Johnny? Um I don't know why I felt that way. Again, I don't know if I'm putting this on there or if it's just the way that Cronenberg is using uh, the score or his framing of scenes to kind of, there's always something else going on in the scenes, I guess, than the dialogue is my point. So it might've just been my uh, my mood watching it, but. It could be. I mean, there's some dialogue that comes from from the Vizak character where he's like, I want, you know, we're going to take you back to the hospital and we're going to reverse yes. the process. And, yes. And, you know, he's he is his approach is to, you know, open up Johnny's uh, brain mm -hmm. and uh, and figure out, you know, how this special gift works. And it's, I've been doing some reading. Right. It's, he, Johnny is again, he's sort of being he's the. He's the subject of potentially the subject of, of experimentation mm -hmm. uh, when all he wants is to uh, be left alone and, and wallow in his uh, self-pity. Please don't look at me like that. What am I going to do? A few five years have come and gone for me. It's just about the next day. My feelings haven't changed yet. Oh, Johnny. Why did it have to happen like this? Bad luck. I never should have let you go that night. It's my idea, remember? What a jerk. <laughs> Everybody's talking about you. You're the talk of the town. Because I got my head bashed in and I'm still here to talk about it. Because you have the power of second sight. Is it true, Johnny? The papers won't let up about it. I keep thinking about a line from a book. It's the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the last thing I gave my class to read before the accident. 
Ichabod Crane disappears. The line goes, as he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled their head about him anymore. Is that what you're afraid of? That's what I want. It's, I mean, the walk in line, you know, that's what I want is what I want. You know, when he wants to be left alone, mm-hmm. uh, it's so heartbreaking. I found Christopher Walken's just such a, he, he gives such a brilliant performance. This should have been a nominated performance in a film. I was film. thinking that too. You know, it's so good. And it's, it's that whole canard of the Oscars that's true, which is, you know, you can be as good as he is in this movie and not get a nomination because at the time and even now it's kind of looked down upon as, even with a pedigree like this, which is ridiculous, but just imagine, I, I can't imagine there's many more great male film performances in 1983 than Christopher Walken in this movie, who absolutely deserved to be nominated, if not win. One of the things that's cool about his performance is, you know, he's a trauma sufferer. Everything nowadays, right, is about trauma and loss and grief. Every series, every movie has to have that, comic book or otherwise. And here you have a trauma sufferer who's prickly and kind of difficult to deal with in a way that feels really realistic. You know, it's not like he's a cuddly five-year coma survivor. He's got issues, man. You right, know? but you know what else about him? <laughs> he's not doer through the whole movie. There are there are no. these little scenes where the you know scene where he yeah where he first meets Stilson or when he's interacting with the rich father where he's kind of got this. Um, I don't want to say he's cheerful, but there's a he's sort of observing the irony of his yes. situation and it kind of it kind of amuses him. Yes. I mean, he's Walken is either himself uh, bringing a lot of depth to that character or he's being directed to, you know, mm. act in a very specific way to to a specific situation and 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 his response to specific dialogue. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of there's a lot of. uh uh, he's not a static character from one se- from one scene to the next. No, and I think you're you're putting your finger on something that's so great about him in this movie is there's you're right. He's always at the center of it, it's always happening to him first, and he's always kind of wryly, bemusedly observing <laughs> the circumstances, even when they're kind of intense. And the way that you learn about the character is through. Moments like at the gazebo in the uh, Castle Hill killer sequence, which is an amazing piece of sound design and editing. First of all, they shot this in Canada where it was so freaking cold. You can hear that type of cold where they're walking on the snow and it's cracking. Mm-hmm. Do you know that? I love the sound. Do you know that yeah. sound? Yep. It's not cracking through like frozen snow. It's that sound that there's so little moisture in the snow itself that as you walk on it, it creates that sound. And that's how cold it was when they were filming this. Yeah, it's like dry crunching. Yeah, and in that scene and in Cronenberg's brilliant decision to film Johnny in the divisions. She knows it. Not scared. She knows him. I was there, I saw him. I stood there, I saw his face. Who? I stood there and watched him kill that girl. Dodd. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you saying? I did nothing. 
I stood there and watched him kill that guy. How are you talking about? God. I stood there. I did nothing. And it's such a great choice because it shows you that like Johnny is is wounded by something he had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. It feels <laughs> somehow that he's yeah, he feels some kind of responsibility. He feels responsible. Yeah. And but again, that's a foretelling. It's yeah. one of this it's a brilliant thing, is that that mm. little piece of dialogue where he feels some kind mm. of guilt or responsibility for the, you know, when the girl is murdered in front of him in his vision, in his mm. in his vision of the past, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he it, what they're setting up there is that he feels he feels responsible for something that happened in the past. And so when he is given an opportunity at the end of the movie in in life mm. to do something, he picks up that rifle. Yeah, so true. You're right. It is such a good foreshadowing of that. I didn't even connect those two things in my mind. I just was so in the moment of walking in that gazebo and the crunching snow and the pain on his face and and the great way the Dodds thing plays out. Um, you know, it's a it's a genre convention kind of scene, but they Cronenberg plays it straight, and in doing so. It, it kind of has a real a real interest in power. Another interesting thing about the clinic I wanted to mention, um, you do have the picture of Jesus on the wall in Johnny's room, which maybe is maybe that's where I was picking up a little bit of like, is this creepy clinic or is this like straight up clinic? You know, <laughs> but then also, I think brilliantly, whoever picked the locations, when you look at the exterior shot of the clinic, it's off kilter. There's like a bizarre cupola up on top left as you're looking at the clinic exterior so that the clinic is symmetrical as a as a rectangular box that's facing you but then there's this weird cupola that makes it asymmetrical it's just off Mm -hmm. it's like a cronenberg thing and then at johnny's house where he does the tutoring later it's also kind of off it's like has a taller part on the left side and then a, a, a shorter part on the right side and it's just i think a use of architecture throughout the film to kind of give you this this setup that the sense that things are not quite right, even as Johnny's trying to put together a life. It was funny. I don't know if you had this experience. I mean, I was watching the movie and uh, I was watching it at home and my wife was watching something else. And I had, I'm watching the first like two thirds of the movie and I'm like, I haven't seen this film in 25 or 30 years. Why do I remember every line of like Walken's dialogue? Like, why do I remember this so well? And it just felt like something other was at work than, you know, what we definitely liked as stoned teenagers when we watched this film <laughs> during high school was we liked the walk-in line readings. Um, and my friend Buck, who I know loves this film too, I sent him I sent him a clip from the film and I just said, God, you know, why do I remember this film so well? And he wrote back, um, he wrote back, God's been a real sport to me, that walk-in line, but he wrote it with like a jumble of lowercase and capitalized letters to indicate walk-in's <laughs> cadence. It was so brilliant. Uh, right. So I'm, I'm watching the film and I'm like, why do I remember this so well? And then the scene with the rich kid comes in, the, the, um, the father, the single dad, I guess, the single parent with the misunderstood, quiet, studious kid who would rather work on his computer and read books and stay in his room, then go out and participate in roughhousing and sports. And I was like, Oh, okay. There, there it is. There's little Jason in his mind. Not, not a rich kid. Cause that wasn't my upbringing, uh-huh. but Johnny's, um, 
the way that relationship is portrayed and walk-in is so good with kids. I said to Amanda right away, I was like, you know, I think it's a mark of being a really good actor when you can be really good with kids in scenes. Mm-hmm. He's so present with that kid. You know, he's not uh, condescending. Like, he's a friend. And even though he's Christopher Walken and he can read a little creepy at times, there's none of that in the scene. There's none of the way, you know what I mean? It's like, it's that re- it's that sort of a kid being understood, I guess. You know, uh, a kid who doesn't quite fit in. And that's, of course, what I think a lot of us who read through a lot of these Stephen King books in the 80s identified with, because that's Stephen King, of course. He was the misfit who didn't fit in. So I think that's always a part of his stuff, but I thought it was so well well illustrated here. And that kind of was a little piece of the film falling into place. I thought, oh, that's why it really resonated with me. Huh. Yeah, well, and you know, part of it is Walken's performance, but part of it is what's, you know, what's intended in the story, which is that Johnny um, is a kind of a, a naive guy. Mm. Um, he's not just regular. He's also kind of naive and, uh, and gives people the benefit of the doubt, but he's much more, uh, tuned in to kids in every Mm. way than he is to, to the adults around him. He can't really figure out the intentions of the adults around him. The kids are simpler for him to, to, um, to to communicate with from the very beginning where he's in that class Mm. teaching the kids, the, uh, teaching the kids, the Raven and, um, and Ichabod Crane. And he's having a great time as a high school English teacher. We don't even see whether the kids think he's a dork or not. He's just having a, you know, he's enjoying being, um, around the, um, the atmosphere Mm. of the, of the kids in his classroom. And then through all of his sort of, visions and getting drawn into situations where he Mm. uh, would prefer uh, not to have to act. It's Mm. having a vision about um, the little girl who's trapped in her room in the fire. Yeah. Uh, It's the, it's the, uh, the kid, you know, the kids falling through the ice. Mm. He does not determine to enter into the murder investigation until he sees something on TV where it turns out that one of the victims is a 15 year old girl. You're right. Um, You're right. So these are these are all the the important points of the story where uh, he either directly or indirectly uh, feels a responsibility to help children. That's a theme in the that's a theme in the story. Yeah, I guess you're totally right. And the way that the um, the way that the kid plays, uh, I got to get this kid's name. I can't just keep calling him the kid. Uh, Anthony Maybe. Zerby is so good as the father, Roger Stewart. Uh-huh. Uh, Simon Craig plays Chris, who's the boy. Right who's so good. He's kind of, yeah, he's just, he's present the way Walken is present. I don't know, as actors in a scene together, I think it's pretty rare that you have a kid that young opposite an actor who can who can have the power that a Walken can have emotionally just in the room. And, yeah, and quickly too. I don't <laughs> think that actor is in more than four or five scenes no. in the whole movie. I mean, it's he's not in it very much. No. From, you immediately uh, feel that there's a, there's they're, a bond. They are, they're, they are able to to successfully uh, establish a friendship between uh, Johnny and uh, and uh, and Chris. And the way um, they, the way that 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 uh, Cronenberg in the script does it is so great because when Roger Stewart brings Johnny up to Chris's room, you know Chris is kind of like writing or drawing or something and sort of not looking up from his desk. And Walken comes in and is looking around his room, and I think Walken says. You know, your, your father thinks you need to come out of your shell. 
And Chris says something like, he's, my father's the one who lives in a shell. And Walken gives this great laugh. And then it cuts to Walken and Chris walking across the lawn as Anthony Zerby looks out the window. And the ease with which Chris and walk, Chris, you know, Chris and Johnny are together uh, is so genuine. And it's, it's rare, I guess. It's kind of like the way people sometimes miss the humor in Kubrick's movies. I wonder if sometimes people miss the real human emotion that Cronenberg is able to demonstrate on screen, even in films that he makes that are, that can be so uh, violent or sexual or prurient, you know, but he's got a really deft touch for genuine moments of human connection in this film. And I guess that's what's so heartbreaking as Christopher, as Johnny loses connection and, and is increasingly more and more isolated to the point where for any kind of like shooter movie, you know, to end up in the upper balcony as he does with the rifle, you're kind of like, no, Johnny, but at the same time, you know, he has to do what he's doing because we've seen the vision of Stilson starting a nuclear holocaust in his madness. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's a daring take <laughs> to, to bring our protagonist there and let it play out. And then as, as mordantly as it plays out with Stilson grabbing Sarah's baby as a shield. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. so crazy. Yeah, and again, another another child uh, enters uh, enters the story. Well, right. we've seen the kid before, but now in the living world, not just in in mm. the um, premonitions and the and the visions, but now in the living world, uh, Johnny has to make a choice about whether he's going to take that second rifle shot, and he chooses to save the baby. Mm. Uh, let's sing the praises of Brooke Adams, who I just think is so good and unique. Days of Heaven, the 1978 Body Snatchers, we did that on the pod. This era is so specific to her, to me. I don't know. I just think she is so good in these 70s films and 80s films. Um, and is a real actor, you know, uh, but is a persona that's so specific to the era. I just really enjoy her all the time. I don't have any uh, anything negative to say about her performance in this movie. Uh, if we were getting to uh, a list of anything that's a shortcoming, um, I think her dialogue is bad. Oh, uh, really? I wish I wish that her. I wish we could have gotten. I wish we could have brought her into the story. Brought given her uh, something to given given her something more to do other than just sort of be the object of his affection. I know what you mean. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't like her. I thought her dialogue was a little uh, underimagined. When you say her dialogue, like what speci- where specifically? Was it like I just in- feel like the only scenes we really get with her, again, I'm, I'm not objecting to the, the performance, mm-hmm. but she doesn't have a whole lot of lines other than saying, I love you, I miss you, what am I going to do without you? And then, and then when she comes back, mm-hmm. uh, she's really just kind of there to, to uh, start unbuttoning her top. Well, let's I I think you're being a little unfair. I mean, to me, Brooke Adams is the type of actor who, if the dialogue maybe leaves something to be desired, I think she's the type of actor you use because she conveys a wistfulness uh, just on screen. And in the scenes where uh, where she and Johnny are together again, awkwardly at first, um, with misunderstandings, you know, they're not connected. I mean, five years has passed like. I guess you could have stopped down and really plumbed that, but then it kind of becomes a different type of movie. 
I just don't think she has a lot of ambition in this movie. I mean, we know that she's a school teacher and then she's a mom, you know, a full-time mom. And then she's uh, a volunteer for this, uh, Mm -hmm. for this a-hole who's, you know, running for Senate or whatever. And I just feel like um, we're not given anything except a lot of except surface with her. Yeah. I guess I just read a lot into her surface. So her pained face in scenes, and her scene with 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 Johnny and with his dad when they're having dinner, um, I just think those are well done. And I think she she's the type of actor who exudes a emotional presence and warmth. And so cutting away to her confused looking face to me is worth a handful of dialogue lines. I also think it's really funny when we do meet what's her husband, Walt. Um, he looks exactly like Chris Walken. I mean, doesn't look exactly like Chris Walken, but it's clear <laughs> she married a guy that looks like Johnny. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's just not, it's not remarked on. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, they're just sort of the same physical type. They have kind of the same color hair. Uh, right. And they don't make anything of it, but I think it's a pretty funny, uh, pretty, pretty funny moment. I will say uh, against myself when I was making notes, I wrote Karen Allen instead of Brooke Adams, which is like probably happened to both of them. Uh, throughout the entirety of their career, and I apologize. Right. We cause... had that. We had that debate in my house. I called her not Karen Allen, and my husband, Doctor C, wanted to call her not Margot Kidder. Right. Yes, the third member of that triumvirate of brunette uh, '70s esque actors who were seemingly in a ton of movies at this mm-hmm. time. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention was when uh, when Dodd. What exactly is Dodd's method of killing himself in the bathroom? Uh, well, it's to be first to be naked, <laughs> then to put on a great big raincoat. Uh, it is, it is Cronenberg. Yeah. Uh, get into the bathtub. Yeah. I forgot if he's got another ritual before he swallows uh, a pair of scissors. No, I think he just he's 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 it's it's almost prayerful, I guess, in the religious uh, themology of the film. Uh, uh-huh. But I, I, I couldn't imagine how you could kill yourself by lowering your head on a pair of scissors, I guess. It seemed a little far-fetched to me. In the <laughs> novel, the guy, the killer is a strangler. Uh, and for some reason, they decide to switch him to a, a guy who, I guess, stabs women to death with scissors. Hmm. So do you think, did he lower, he, he forcefully put his head... He put the scissors into his mouth and that's supposed to go up to the brain pan. Is that what we're supposed to think? I guess. I mean, it's not like the scissors were that long. No. It seemed like a bad way to commit suicide, <laughs> especially when you're a cop and you've got a, you know, a loaded gun, um, you know, 10 feet away. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, but that's I, less ritualistic. It's right? less ritualistic. I mean, look, I appreciate the Cronenbergness of it. The squeaking of the rubber raincoat, the the water, the bathtub and the, the, the creeping through the house that uh, Tom Skerritt and, and Christopher Walken are doing Colleen Dewhurst does the mom. It's all it's a it's really incredible. The, the film, if people watch it again, I just think it's put together so extraordinarily well. It's so well assembled without being showy or grandiose in 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 the way that that writer was sort of talking about the shining being sort of operatic and all the steady cam and things like that. This is a more straightforwardly assembled film, but I think it contains almost uniform, impressive performances held together by Christopher Walken at the center. One scene I wanted to mention that broke my heart. When Walken has the vision of Chris falling through the ice with the hockey game that he that his father is trying to force on them, 
And then um, there's that great scene where uh, he, the dad doesn't want to hear it. Uh, but then, you know, Johnny's vision wins out. But then it turns out the dad was just trying to get rid of Johnny. And then he goes back to the kids room. And he's like, let's go. Come on. And and the kid doesn't want to go and turns around silently and just returns to his computer programming, which is such a great way to end the scene. And the dad walks out and and goes to the hockey game. And then we cut to Johnny walking down the street and he sees a newspaper and it says that two kids drowned in a hockey accident. And he calls the house. I remember this so well as a teenager uh, when Chris uh, Chris answers the phone because the father is just sitting there silently uh, in the aftermath of what he has done, that he didn't listen to Johnny and two kids are now dead. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting there kind of like swirling his scotch and not answering the phone. Chris comes and answers the phone. And he when he says, hello, who is it? And, and Chris doesn't, Chris, Johnny doesn't say anything. And he goes, Johnny? That way he says Johnny breaks my heart. Oh, it's such a good scene. And that he knows it's Johnny. Yes. Johnny? Like, that's the thing that is imprinted in my mind when I watched this film again. I was like, God, do I remember these things? It's just, it's funny how in doing the podcast, you watch a lot of movies and you realize how everything really is connected to our childhood, or at least it is for me. I guess what I respond to subconsciously in films so I wasn't aware of these things at the time, but when I'm looking at them now, I'm like, duh. You know, do you think right. you were, do you think you were interested in the story of a kid who kind of felt a little lost and unparented, <laughs> who has a connection with someone who finally takes interest in him? And and you kind of have these moments that you want to have with someone where they know it's you on the phone and you know it's them on the phone without having to say mm -hmm. anything. It's just kind right. of like could have saved a lot of money in therapy. Another parallel also uh to the scene earlier in the movie when uh, Dr. Visa, when uh, Johnny tells Dr. Vizek he's had the vision of that his mother is still alive, mm. and then Vizek traces down the phone number yes. of his, uh, his mother and then decides yeah. not to say anything when she picks up the phone. Such a great, powerful scene, right? It feels mm. real. It feels like this is what humans do. We're not able to meet the moment. And I guess it all sets up sort of that one to me sets up Johnny's Johnny's gift, quote unquote, isn't always the gift it might seem to be, right? Yeah. Like this guy's lived his whole life under the impression that his mother died in the war. Mm -hmm. It's almost overwhelming for him to have to contemplate that she's been here the whole time and he could just look her up in the phone book. It's the, it's the mundanity of how he finds her that's part of this Cronenberg-esque, I think, attitude. Vizak makes a decision that, that finding his mother, um, alive is somehow what do you say it, it's in the past for him mm. and then and johnny doesn't quite understand why he would why he would um deny a mm. reunion with his mother and then johnny himself is put in a situation where he calls uh you know he calls uh, uh chris on the phone and then has a realization that that the, the situation with the kids falling through the ice is also in the past. There's nothing he can do about it now. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the that that hurdles us to that great conversation between uh, Johnny and, and Doctor Wysak about what would you do if you could go back in the old conundrum? Would you <laughs> would, if you had the chance to kill Hitler? Would you do it? Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can. I can change it. 
You can change it exactly. Huh. Here. Yes, John. That is your your dead zone. The possibility of of altering the outcome of your your premonitions. It's fascinating. Let me make a note. What about my question, Sam? Huh? Oh, you mean the one about uh, about Hitler? What would you do? I don't like the sound of this, John. What are you getting at? What would you do? Would you kill him? All right. All right, I'll give you an answer. Uh, I'm a man of medicine. I'm expected to save lives and ease suffering, and I, I love people. Therefore, I would have no choice but to kill the son of a bitch. It doesn't matter. I would kill him. Nazdrovia, skull. I love that scene. It's such a good scene. And it's such a good scene because it's a use of something that's like, everybody's kind of had that conversation just sitting around stoned or or just, you know, doing what ifs. Um, but it's a real key moment in the whole film has like been building to that conversation. And I guess... Dr. Sam is kind of the only person Johnny can really be honest with, although mm -hmm. he's not even totally honest with him because I think we, I guess we don't know that he's going to do what he's going to do as that scene plays out, but it's the, uh, the, the scene starts with the realization that they both have that he can change things that haven't yet happened because um, the first time we encounter the power, it's happening right then. Like it's it's Amy is in the house alone and the house is on fire. It's just pure luck that like someone listens enough to go check it out and the kid survives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in the case of the serial killer, he doesn't save the no. girls who have been murdered. He comes their their uh, their visions of the past, not and, the present or future. And as you said so brilliantly, he's he's so consumed with I stood right there. I, I did nothing. I was right there. Uh -huh. And, and then with the hockey, it's a premonition. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to tell these people, don't do this. Um, and, and, and for a terrifying moment, you think, oh, my God, they're going to go anyway. Like, they're going to not listen to Johnny. It sets up in a way something I thought sort of cynically at the end of the movie. Isn't it possible for Johnny to have a different, isn't there a different method to achieve what he wants with Stilson than killing him? Like, couldn't he use his apparently national uh, newspaper profile as a gifted psychic to just <laughs> go to the press and say that Stilson's going to do this stuff? Wouldn't that be enough to ruin Stilson's chances? Like, does he really have to shoot him? I don't know. <laughs> I guess you don't have that clean, clear ending. But I just was like, Johnny, he could have maybe tried something before then. Right. Well, and again, you know, he for religious reasons, he needs to become a martyr by the end of the uh, story. Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah. Do we have like a Christ-like photo of him at the end? I didn't. I didn't even really pay attention. To that. Uh, I didn't well, see that. some people think that when he is when he uh, is in the uh, that meeting hall and he and uh, he gets shot and goes over the mm -hmm. railing, mm -hmm. that he crashes into the table and that he's laying there with his arms uh, splayed out on top of the 
basically, you know, the table is made of wood. Mm-hmm. So he is Christ-like on the, on the, on the, yes. uh, you know, the scene of his death. And also brilliantly, there's the slowly ripped red, white, and blue bunting that falls over the scene, <laughs> much like at the end of uh, Blowout, where De Palma does something similar where the big fight between Lithgow and Travolta's character happens against this this sort of Patton-esque backdrop of Americana. Yeah. Um, and I also thought of the shot in Heat after the, uh, after the first scene where the crew rams the armored truck. There's this a massive conflagration of noise and then in the aftermath, when they've knocked the truck over, there's just a, 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 a banner that falls from a used car lot silently. And that's sort of the punctuation of the scene. So mm-hmm. that's a little cinematic trope I've just picked up over the years. But uh, I see. I guess it's a sign of how much I liked Johnny. I just didn't want him to have to go where he went. Um, but I guess I understand in the context of the movie, it had to be the way it was. Poor Johnny. Poor Johnny. Poor, jo- Poor Johnny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to know if you noticed this distinctive Cronenberg camera movement that's used throughout the film. There's this slow turn. Um, and if people are watching the film after this, keep an eye out for it. It's as if the camera is, it's usually in a, in a scene where two people are in dialogue. And it's almost as if the camera kind of starts from the right side of the frame and it and it makes a, a, a C-shaped move around the action. It's a really unique move that happens quite a bit throughout the film. And it gives you, I guess, a bit of a voyeuristic thing because it's the, the frame of reference is moving in a scene where it doesn't really need to. More, more I guess in a left, less gifted filmmaker, it would just be, master shot over the shoulder, close up, master shot, you know, dialogue construction. But he does this cool move quite a bit, which lends a certain style to things. And I think also contributes to that, that sense of uh, foreboding that. Do you remember a scene where that, uh, where that's used? Um, let's see, I, I can probably, for my notes, I, 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 I wrote it after I, I wrote a note about the, hello, who is it? Johnny? It, it's kind of somewhere after there. So uh-huh. I think it's the, I think I know that's, I think after that is the conversation he has uh, with Dr. Wiesak, right? About if you could go back in time, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And maybe I can change the future. In that conversation with Wiesak, I'm pretty sure he does it, uh, but it happens a bunch throughout the film. Just keep an eye out for it if you watch it again. It's just, okay. a, it's a cool, just one of those things I think is uh, contributing to our sense as a viewer, not necessarily of unease, but just it gives you a different feeling in a scene that could be cut very differently in a straightforward film. And I do also want to single out how amazing the score is in this film. I don't know if you were picking up or moved by it, but Michael Kamen's score is so good and so specifically attuned with this Cronenberg sensibility. And in the opening titles, the score is telling you some things that are not yet apparent. I mean, it's a great title sequence, by the way.
his score is both just contains all the stuff we're talking about this this wistfulness this this melancholy this foreboding sense of uh, an inability to change events but a desire to do so um I think the writer that I that I quoted before referred to it as a lonely score. And I thought that perfectly oh, that's good. summed it up. Yeah. I don't know much about Michael Kamen. It was mentioned that Cronenberg uh, would usually partner with uh, Howard Shore. Yes. Um, uh, Michael Kamen, I didn't know. I think he's British. No, he's American. He's, oh, okay. you know, he's, um, well, he was, I guess he, he died pretty young, I think. Um, so he, let's see what some of his greatest film scores include. Dead Zone, Polyester, Brazil, Someone to Watch <laughs> Over Me, Baron Munchausen, hmm. uh, Three Musketeers, Highlander, X-Men, Prince of Thieves, License to Kill, all the Lethal Weapon movies. First three Die Hard films, Mr. Holland's Opus, The Iron Giant, Frequency, Memento. Well, he's definitely there. I mean, he's definitely the composer in a lot of movies that I like. I have to pay yeah. better attention. He's always interesting. He, he, I think he won a couple Academy Awards, uh, or at least was nominated for a couple. He's also done a lot of like rock work with bands like Pink Floyd, Metallica. He's, got, he's an interesting guy. He did a lot in, I guess he, let's see, he died in 2003, only 55 years of age. But in huh. that time... Uh, he had done all those movies. He'd worked with Pink Floyd on the wall. He worked on the Metallica album, Nothing Else Matters. Um, he did a ton, a ton of things. So I think that's such a great use of music in the film. And I was just so glad to revisit a film like this that I think of fondly, but I think I thought of it more kind of like humorously about walk-ins line readings when I thought about it. But having revisited mm -hmm. it for this, I was so pleased to have a really emotional experience with Johnny and and to care about him so much and again to just be reminded how how unique and gifted Christopher Walken is. I mean, he's he's unreal. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought of a couple things in regard to Christopher Walken. One is I forget which episode. There was an episode you did over the summer where you ended up going into talking about something that Sidney Poitier said about acting. Yes. Which was he he said that there were two kinds of actors. There were performing, there were performance actors, and there were soul actors. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't necessarily, I don't think he was saying something bad about performing actors, but performing actors are, you know, actors where you sort of you're sort of anticipating what you're gonna yes. get, you know, out of a out of somebody's performance, whether it be on uh, you know, on screen or stage or whatever. Whereas a soul actor you're going deep into what's beneath mm -hmm. the face of that character. Right. And I feel like we really get, get that out of Christopher, Wal Christopher Walken in this movie, because frankly, I hadn't seen the dead zone in its entirety. To me, Christopher Walken of today, like you said, is kind of treated with a level of irony. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of all the, the sort of, you know, the, the impersonations of his, of his cadence or whatever. Yes. And it was really uh, interesting and, and fun to go back and see this really brilliant performance again, where he is embodying that character at so many different levels in a soulful way. Uh, that's yeah. one thing I was going to say about it. About totally Walken's performance. The second thing is actually, 
um, just a quote that I found from Cronenberg, uh, where he says, where he calls Christopher Walken's face. Yes. The subject, I wrote that the too. subject of the movie. <laughs> I wrote that down too. Mm-hmm. That must he have been says, in that clip I sent you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cronenberg says the movie is about Christopher Walken's, Walken's face. All things, all things are said in his face. Um, yes. That's a really, that's a really great observation on his part again, because it combines both the physicality of what Christopher Walken is turning in here and the, and what's beneath the face also, which is um, very uh, engaging and, and sympathetic. And it really speaks to what a, what a, what a great, uh, how much Walken uh, sort of presents this mismaterial in a way that uh, really amazes you. Yeah, you're so right. I think it's such a great application of the Poitier comment about the two different types of actors. One one type of actor is someone who never lets you forget you're watching a great actor at work, and then the other mm-hmm. is someone whose work you can disappear mm-hmm. into. And it's something I'm so fascinated by, and I talk about it a lot on the pod. I ask my wife about it all the time because she's a director and works with actors. Like, you point a camera at Christopher Walken, and there's just something, you're, you're having a cellular response before he even does anything. Like, certain actors possess that ability. Now, of course, an actor of note uh, assumes a whole host of things in your mind also before they kind of do anything that you're bringing to a performance. Yet what's great about films, what's great about movies is, to paraphrase a Hunter S. Thompson phrase, if you look at them with the right kinds of eyes, you can be transported back to a time like this before there was a Christopher Walken impersonation so widely shared and and done by so many people and and all that stuff that he somehow embodies like that's what actors are they're they're mm-hmm. people who on on screen evoke something in us as viewers and if you're casting well and you're thinking you're analytical to use that phrase about Cronenberg there's a lot of other people you could imagine in this role. I think he considered some other people or at least um, some other actors. Were, I don't know if it was Cronenberg or if this was kind of like through the development, but didn't um, you mentioned a couple of the actors that were. Well, you remember they wanted Bill, or, you know, Bill Murray. Uh, well, we say Stephen they. King, which, let's, let's, be, Steve- let's be clear. Who, who wanted Bill Murray? Um, well, I don't know because we'd have. A couple different directors uh, going through the, uh, uh, you know, uh, Some going on the project, and we have several different screen, you know, screenplays, and so at some point, Stephen King wanted Bill Murray for this part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and not to we get, you know. and then we also get, you know, sort of the the um, the usual suspects: Pacino, De Niro, <laughs> Richard Gere, also. Um, the guy who was who ended up playing the uh, Castle Rock Killer. Yeah, Nicholas Campbell. Yeah, he he was the one that um, that uh, Cronenberg. Well, wanted. he's Cronenberg's guy. So right, and then Dino De Laurentiis stepped in and said, "No, we're gonna, no, we need somebody who's a bigger, uh, you know, more recognizable name than that." And also, one of the weirdest notes in the history of who might have directed this, Stanley Donen, right, singing the in the rain, director, the, the king of the MGM uh, <laughs> musical? musical. What? Uh-huh. That's a Dino De Laurentiis thing. Also, John Badham and Michael Cimino were mm-hmm. once attached to direct, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, I read that John Badham declined because he thought the uh, he thought the story was irresponsible. Really? The whole, 
yeah, the the whole going, you know, the whole would you go back in time and kill Hitler thing. He thought that that was uh, hmm. uh, he didn't want to be a part of that. Interesting. OK. I also read that Cronenberg wanted Hal Holbrook to per, to portray the. Um, the sheriff. Yeah. who uh, Tom Skerritt. Yeah. Who I love Tom Skerritt. I don't know. Tom Skerritt, you know, is in a way everything I respect and admire about the craft of acting without uh-huh. all the bullshit. Because when is he ever not good in anything? <laughs> this guy's probably been right. in 400 movies. Mm-hmm. And he's always, and he's really good. Like, he's good. He doesn't get credit for that. Why? Why is he sort of, like, considered? He just doesn't get the respect of, like, a Chris Walken, which I get. I mean, Chris Walken is a very unique type of actor. But, like, Tom Skerritt is always reliably good, number one. And he conveys a, in this movie, he's got a certain sadness to him. He's got a openness. He's not playing just your typical sheriff by the book character. Like, I don't really remember Nicholas Campbell's beats as Dodd as a police officer mm-hmm. any more than I really mm-hmm. remember his beats as a, you know, deranged raincoat clad scissors killing uh, serial killer. But, you know, I remember the kind of kindness and decency and good humor that Tom Skerritt plugs into, which is such a Stephen King kind of vibe for a local cop or sheriff. I feel like that's a trope we see a lot. So I I just wanted to sing the praises of Tom Skerritt. Uh, I think Tom Skerritt is great in this. I also uh, do think it's great that Cronenberg wanted Hal Holbrook to play that role. And apparently Dino De Laurentiis said, I don't know who that is. I got to do a Dino De Laurentiis episode. Just to, he's such a every time he comes up in the podcast, there's always stories like this where you're just like, how did this guy become like one of the most famous names in cinema while apparently not knowing who the hell anyone was and making a whole bunch of terrible suggestions and ideas? I don't know how it happened, but I guess being rich probably helps. Mm-hmm. Now, Cronenberg's next film after this, just to kind of wrap <clears> up, um, was a huge hit. This film was. I wouldn't say it was a hit, but it certainly made money. The budget was $10 million, but it wasn't quite the, it wasn't quite the hit that Carrie was, for example. And similar King adaptations that made about this kind of money would include Cujo or Christine, which is a John Carpenter adaptation. I would probably enjoy revisiting, uh, mm-hmm. Also came out in 1983. So those all kind of starter Firestarter in 84. They all made about the same amount. They all made about the same, which is, you know, in those days, that's kind of, you know, double your money. You're you're not spending $10 million to market a movie in those days. So uh, a reliable business, but certainly not the hit that the fly was, which was probably to this day is probably Cronenberg's biggest hit film, the remake of the fly. Uh, also, also might be worth revisiting. So, I might go in do a little. You, do, do you feel though that the Dead Zone, despite the fact that it that it sort of finished even with its similar, you know, competition at that time in the, the mid '80s, do you feel like it's a you know it's a bigger film now than it was then? You know, more I don't successful film in in its lifetime. That's a good question. I certainly know that when I posted that I was going to do this on the full cast and crew Instagram account, uh, it got a very overwhelming crescendo of positivity. I think like the type of people that would listen to this podcast probably really, really like and appreciate 
the dead zone, but I don't know what what space it really occupies outside the think pieces on places like we were you know reading uh, from earlier. Um, yeah, I think people probably go, oh yeah, but I don't know how much how much it's really appreciated. I mean, a film like Carrie, you know, which was a revelation to revisit for me when I did it on the pod with Lee Wilkoff. Great episode. People should listen to it if they haven't. Um, Carrie has more cultural resonance to this day. They're still making Carrie offshoots. Now, you brought, yeah, I had forgotten this, that they did do seven seasons or six seasons of a Dead Zone TV <laughs> series. <laughs> the Dead Zone TV series, yes. So I never watched that. Um, it has, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Anthony Michael Hall, right. So and apparently also Tom Scarrett. I don't know. I oh, really? It by accident. Uh, okay, yeah. so that was like in the 2000s, I guess? Yeah, I mean it's a pretty good run. So it must have had it must have had a fan base. I don't know if it adheres specifically to the book or whether it just kind of used the IP and spun it off. But I would imagine we might see this again um, as a film. You know, as a as a like there are Cronenberg nerds out there who are hardcore um, Cronen nerds. Is that what they're called? That's a good term. No, Cronen nerds. I just made that up. But I like you're it. welcome to use it. Yeah, I don't know what they think about this. Like, they probably miss the sickness and the sophistication of things like scanners or Videodrome um, or Crash. I don't know what the Cronin nerds think about this, if they think like, oh, that's when he like went Hollywood. Uh, but for the rest <laughs> of us, you know, it's um, it's got visually some scenes that, you know, you will never forget. I mean, Christopher walking in the bed that's on fire when he's having the Amy is incredible. That's imprinted on my brain as a child. Uh, the scene in the gazebo, all of that stuff and this performance, it's just a great revisit of a time that doesn't exist anymore in filmmaking mm -hmm. and and something that's made by people who are at the top of their game. So I really don't forget the it. ice is going to break. The ice is going to break when he smashes the vase. Oh, I didn't notice that. So great. I didn't notice that. Doesn't he throw something or does he, does he throw the vase? No, he just smashes it with his cane. Oh, his cane. That's right. That's right. Right. And now I'm going to be forced to do uh, a, uh, an amateur walking <laughs> impersonation. And and that does work. Like it that's I believe that's the moment where the father appears to give up and say, Okay, fine, right? Well, again, it's the it's it's walk in managing that character's emotions mm. where he's so mild mannered most of the time. And then when he gets upset about something, he really delivers. And it's also an indication I think, mentioning the cane reminds me that over the course of the film, after Johnny wakes up with his quote unquote gift, he essentially physically gets worse and wastes away. Through, yeah, through he's the dying. Film. He's dying. 
um, which is kind of emotional as well. So I really, really enjoyed the film. I um, was surprised to kind of have it be as emotionally resonant as it was. And it's more than what I thought it was when I thought about it. And I'm just really thrilled that we did it. And by the way, Rick, you know where this is leading. Given everything that I've been doing on the pod lately, I I kind of have to also now do um, the, the one that he did with... Um, Oh my God, my memory is so shot. I need a gift like Chris Walken. I'm literally looking at my own Instagram account to have a memory of something I posted so that I can cite it here. Uh, Louise Fletcher, Brainstorm. Oh, okay. Have you seen that? Uh, a long time ago. So Brainstorm is kind of an interesting curiosity, a very interesting science fiction film. I haven't seen it in, again, 25 or 30 years, but I have a very specific memory of attachment to the Louise Fletcher character. And that's another Who's that director. Well, that was directed by Douglas Trumbull. Oh, okay. Uh, who did this, who did, well, I shouldn't say who he, when he gets referenced, people say he did the special effects for 2001. Well, of course that really bothered Stanley Kubrick because he didn't uh. do the special effects. He did some of them. He was involved in that, but that became his claim to fame. Um, he did do the special effects for close encounters. And he, this is the last film that he directed. Uh, this is the film that Natalie Wood died on uh-huh. and became such a controversy. Uh-huh. And so it's a science fiction film. It's got some interesting filmmaking. I haven't seen it in a long, long time, but Louise Fletcher passed away last week, who's uh-huh. probably best known as uh, Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But this is the film I always associate her with, where she's more warm and engaging and present. And I think given that Chris Walken also is in Brainstorm, that's going to be a natural next film. So I'm just planting that seed for you in case it takes takes sprout. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Richard. Well, thank you so much for joining me again. I appreciate it. Our episodes are always just occasions for fascinating in-depth conversations of the sorts I love to have about movies. So I thank you for doing that great work that is obviously represented in all the smart things you had to say today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you uh, inviting me to do this episode. Uh, this Dead Zone was not uh, uh, not a movie that was, you know, high on my list. And uh, I was really glad for the opportunity to go back to re- to revisit, to really watch it and learn a lot about it because it's great. Thank you, Richard. 